When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So as listeners to any of my podcasts know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And you have now introduced the temporal element. So I'm going to expand on that to the temporal timeline. So fabulous reference, Mike. Uh, Maybe your best ever with the temporal element. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm back with fan favorite Mike DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard. We take a look at some of the key events, cases, and indices from Q4 of 2021 around compliance. We take a deep dive into the Lisa Monaco speech. We take a look at the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption and we consider what both of these will mean for the compliance professional going into 2020 and beyond. I know you'll enjoy this episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Mike DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard for our quarterly review of the past quarter. First of all, uh, welcome back, Mike. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be back. Always always fun to come on and, and talk with you. Mike, as we recorded Q3, Lisa Monaco had just given her statement uh, at the ABA White Collar Defense, and we intentionally held off on talking about that, although we both wanted to, uh, for this podcast. And uh, I can't really think of a more significant event in 2021 for FCPA and compliance than that speech. So maybe I could ask you, uh, I know this is something you guys have had to talk about internally. It's in the annual report. Uh, You've certainly had to counsel clients on it. So maybe if you could give some of your big picture views of it, and then we can drill down into what it might mean for the individual CCO or compliance practitioner. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the, the speech was um, anticipated. We knew something like this was, was going to come, right. We're in the first year of a new administration, uh, you know, the, the new administration likes to put their own stamp on enforcement and, and change policies. So we knew something like this was going to come um, and we're sort of waiting for it to happen. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's probably when you when we look back at, at 2021, um, particularly given sort of the soft, uh, that's not the right term, the the the. Co- comparatively low level of, of FCPA enforcement. I think when we look back at 2021, this will be the, the, the piece that stands out the most. So, you know, the, the three points in there, right, in, in, in the speech, the three policy changes, if you will, in order to obtain full cooperation credit, 
uh, the department is reverting back to the old policy where companies have to provide all information regarding individuals um, and, and individuals within the corporation who may have been involved. So uh, this had been the policy under the Yates memo. It had changed uh, during the last administration to allow companies to obtain full credit only by providing information about the individuals who were maybe substantially involved in the misconduct. Uh, but now the policy is shifting back to, to require full uh, disclosure about all individuals involved in the misconduct. Uh, the, 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 the second piece is um, taking a broader view of past misconduct. So, so when, when the department is looking at um, uh, appropriate penalties and, and uh, resolutions, it, you know, historically has looked at, you know, past misconduct in that same area. So if you've got an FCPA case, you would look at past FCPA uh, cases for the company. Uh, and now they will be taking a broader view to look at all past misconduct. Then the third piece is the approach towards monitorships, which I, I think might have the most immediate impact, which is, you know, there, there had been a very clear trend away from monitorships, only using them in exceptional circumstances. Uh, and, the, the, the approach now appears to be uh, to back to, to the, the approach taken under the Obama administration, which was, you know, it, it's case by case, but monitorships are, are not disfavored and, and they'll be used when appropriate. So let's start with maybe uh, the first part, which uh, they're all intriguing, so I can't say one interests me more than the other, but uh, the, reverts, the reversion to the Yates memo. And um, one of the things I've seen in my, I started kind of playing in this space about 07, is uh, both an ongoing dialogue between the Department of Justice, practitioners like yourself, commentary like me and companies, but it's not a one, all a one-way street. So sometimes the DOJ might pull back, sometimes they might listen, sometimes they might listen to, to people like yourself who have private conversations. I know they kind of listen to what the commentary add. And, and so to, to see a change in a policy no longer really surprises me but I guess on this one, it seemed the DOJ wanted to take a little bit more control about how much or rather uh, their decision on who to prosecute. And if that's correct, uh, would you see this as perhaps leading to more individual prosecutions or do you have a different view on that? My view on the on the Yates memo back, you know, this is this is a long time ago. And, and but it, our view internally here at Hughes Hubbard had really been the Yates memo is it didn't change a whole lot, right? It 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 put in writing a lot of a lot of what was already done. I mean, the, the idea that the department was ignoring individual misconduct and and only focused on corporate wrongdoing was I think was was more played up than actually was. Uh, and I think the Yates memo, in part, was to counter that narrative to say no, no, we are going after individuals. The exception, I think, comes with this idea of requiring the companies to basically provide all information about anybody who could potentially be involved in the misconduct, uh, because it, that has a lot of implications. One, um, it really requires the internal investigation that the company is doing to be even potentially be even broader than it might otherwise be. Um, 
So you can you can envision a scenario where for all evidence you've seen so far, no one else is involved, but it's possible. And so now do we need to dig as a company, do we need to dig farther? Do we need to dig deeper? Do we make need to expand the scope of our investigation just to confirm that that these individuals were not involved in misconduct or had no prior knowledge in order to make that representation to the to the department? Uh, and I, I think that's potentially a, a big change for some clients. There's some there's some companies, some clients who are going to do that anyway because they want to make sure that they fully understand anybody who was potentially involved or aware of of the misconduct. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, to your point, I think that the department has had gotten concerned that companies were making a determination on their own as to what substantial involvement meant, who really was culpable enough to, to require prosecution, um, and wanted to put that in the hands of, of the prosecutors. And, and I get that. I think from the company's standpoint, from the industry standpoint, there will be some concern that this change could potentially lead to prosecution of individuals for maybe very minor involvement in, in misconduct or uh, you know kind of questionable involvement, although... Um, you know, every, everything the department has said since this, since the, these policy announcements were made has been to assure uh, the, the industry and, and, and the defense bar that uh, it will still use, you know, exercise its, its um, discretion and, and, and ensure that, that only cases are, are prosecuted where there's, there's evidence of crime. So, but, you know, I, I think there, there certainly is something to the idea that companies should not be the the gatekeeper in terms of deciding which individuals were culpable enough to be prosecuted individually. So that brings me to point number two, which is the department now wants to consider other, i.e. non-FCPA conduct that may, uh, violations which may have occurred or investigations in the context of FCPA. I saw this as actually a part of uh, DAG Monaco's speech around culture. And what I thought she was trying to do was connect, if you've had other substantive legal violations, is it a cultural problem within your organization? And is that something we as regulators need to address? Uh, perhaps I read more into that connection than was made. I know others saw, saw some things a little bit differently. And of all the pushback I've read or heard about since her speech, this one has engendered the most pushback, particularly at the ACI National FCPA Conference in late November of 2021. But it does represent a sea change. And if, uh, as I said, uh, I've sat in the general counsel's chair, and sometimes I didn't know all of the investigations that were going on on a worldwide basis at my organization because some were you know, handled locally uh, for an international company. And so there's that issue, but do you, uh, I, so maybe we could start with what do you see about this broader view of, of conduct that's going to be reviewed and does it tie in your mind to this cultural aspect or do you see the DOJ wanting to evaluate other incidents, if any? I'm largely aligned with you in terms of, I, I think the intention is to look at the, the cultural aspect. Is there, is there something about the company in its culture, whether that's, you know, we don't take compliance with the law that seriously, or we are, we are over aggressive in our business practices. Is there something about the culture of, of the company that, that is leading to 
continued uh, continued issues with with breaking uh, regulations or laws. Um, uh, this will be this will be really interesting to see how it it plays out because one and you just alluded to it for for large organizations and for for you know some some you know incredibly large organizations with you know various subsidiaries in different industries does, are they are they at a disadvantage now i mean i you know the expectation would be that a large organization is is more likely to have uh regulatory or, or criminal issues in in various different areas whether it's tax in one place or you know you might have an environmental issue which which i think was specifically uh mentioned and how will it how will it a large organization be viewed, you know, as compared to a smaller organization. And then there's a, there's a temporal element to it as well. How are they going to judge misconduct? You know, that was maybe 10 years ago or or five years ago versus something that happened last year. Um, And so there's, there's a lot of, I think various, various ways that this could go in, in, in some of the other uh, announcements and speeches from, from new administration officials kind of around the same time, there has been a suggestion that, look, we're, when we're looking at cooperation credit, when we're looking at, at what the appropriate um, resolution is, we will consider all of these aspects. We're going to consider you know, how long ago did the misconduct happen? How egregious was it? Who was involved? Were people punished? All of those things are important. I, I'm hopeful that that's the approach that, that the Department of Justice is going to take. Uh, I think things could get very tricky if um, you know a company is sort of considered a, a recidivist for conduct that happened in a, an entirely different area, maybe a different geography, different industry, in a different subject matter, ten years ago, as compared to, to something that I might happen today, uh, you know I, that's that seems to me to be genuinely unfair. Unless, as you suggest, they can really make a concrete showing as to, you know, both of these incidents are a result of a poor culture or, uh, you know, some, some flaw in the way the company is being run or its compliance program is being managed. We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more from the FCPA Compliance Report. So as listeners to any of my podcasts know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and you have now introduced the temporal element, so I'm going to expand on that to the temporal timeline. So fabulous reference, Mike. Uh, Maybe your best ever with the temporal element. But I know, uh, I think it's your wife, (laughs) antitrust lawyer, and so many people have said, well, antitrust is... There's certainly egregious antitrust violations, but also shading some antitrust violations, and there are differences of interpretation. And you can have some small antitrust matters and some very large ones where there are actual disagreements. And so my concern is if there is sort of a disagreement in the law with the law, or you want to push forward a new uh, uh, interpretation uh, of the law, perhaps companies might get caught on that uh, as well. Uh, do you envision maybe even antitrust being a part of this analysis? I mean, it certainly could, right? I, there, there's, there's no indication that it, it is excluded, um, and I, I think that's exactly your your point is is really a, a broader one, right? Because when we think about corporate misconduct, often, you know, it, it, we in our minds envision just this is just a clear cut, right? Oh, there's a violation of the law, the company was punished, and, and we move on. But 
oftentimes it is close. Maybe there is a different interpretation. And for companies who are, who are often, uh, you know, operating in the interest of their shareholders, uh, they, they may decide, you know what, we should, let's resolve this. We'll admit to them, to the conduct. We'll, we'll pay the fine. We'll, we'll do, uh, you know, we'll remediate whatever it may be because that's in the best interest of the company and the best interest of our shareholders to, to have this resolved when there might be a genuine dispute about, uh, about whether it, this was an actual violation of the law. Uh, and I, I'm, again, I'm hopeful, maybe I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful that, that all of these elements that we're talking about, you know, how egregious was the prior misconduct, regardless of the subject matter of it, I'm hopeful that all of these elements will be considered uh, by the, the Justice Department as we move forward and, and they're considering, um, you know, considering the appropriate resolution currently. And Mike, the third component of the Monaco speech, uh, as you alluded to, was monitors and monitorships and how this Department of Justice has effectively revoked the Benchkowski memo and has at least put monitorships back in their quiver uh, to be considered as a tool they might use. But I'd like to maybe tie that to what I, what I also heard a, a department concern about recidivism. And it's recidivism where there's a, another violation or FCPA violation, this, the traditional type of recidivism, but also um, companies who are not comporting or complying with the terms of their DPA or NPA. Uh, Erickson was called out publicly by the Department of Justice in October. And it seems to me this DOJ is concerned about uh, really uh, not simply recidivism, but also um, companies following uh, the DPAs or other settlement agreements. And so I was wondering what your thoughts might be around monitorships and uh, the recidivist aspect. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting point um, because, you know, the, the, the department hasn't, the department has spoken, you know, uh, DAG Monaco spoke about the monitorship, the changes in monitorships, and um, others have spoken about this focus that the department is going to have on uh, ensuring that the obligations under DPAs or MPAs are are met, uh, and and at least the stated position that they're going to be more aggressive in punishing companies who violate terms of, of DPAs or, or MPAs. Uh, but I, as far as I know, they, they haven't tied the two together. Um, now, obviously there is a, there's a pretty, pretty obvious connection between the two, right? Part of the job of the monitor is to ensure uh, that a company is, is meeting its obligations under a, a specific agreement um, and really doing so in a very hands-on manner in most cases. So I, I certainly think um, the two can, can be related. Uh, for me, the, the, the monitorship piece of this, you know, when I, when I started doing this, this work, um, everybody was talking about, oh, this, this trend towards monitorships. This was, you know, in, in 2007 or 2008. And then for, for the rest of my career up until 2021, 2020, 2021, monitorships were just a, a part of, a, a FCPA resolutions. They were a part of large corporate resolutions. Um, it was, you know, every year we would, in our, in our annual alert, we would talk about, oh, there's been so many, you know, mo- this many monitorships. This is an increasing trend. This is just here to stay. And then all of a sudden it, it was, it, the, the, it was so stark, you know, z- zero monitorships in 2020, uh, you know, I, I think zero in 2021, um, at least in the FCPA context. 
And it was so stark, so surprising also because some of the, some of the resolutions involved a type of sort of pervasive misconduct, widespread misconduct that had historically always led to a monitorship. This change was not surprising to me. Um, I think it will, as I mentioned before, be one of the one of the policy changes that we see the most immediate impact. Like I, I would be very surprised if uh, we go through 2022 without any FCPA monitorships imposed in, in the resolutions. Recidivism or or the, the sort of breaches of, of MPA and DPA point that you made uh, is it's not new, but it's not something that I had historically heard the department focus on as though it was a pervasive problem. Um, we had, of course, had cases where, you know, you had DPAs extended or, you know, monitorships extended because obligations weren't met. Uh, but but the way that the department has been talking about it now suggests that this is a major problem with, with companies violating the terms of their DPAs or MPAs. And the punishment is not just going to be an extension. Uh, the punishment could be, you know, revoking the, the DPA or MPA, which is a, which is a really... Uh, serious outcome um, or additional obligations that aren't just simply, hey, we'll extend the same agreement for another year. So that's something I think really is important to watch. I will be very interested to see if if they if they do get back into imposing monitorships and, and imposing monitors and having that back as a, as a regular mechanism, particularly in FCPA cases, does the concern around the companies meeting their obligations dissipate a bit because there will be a more the understanding that there will be a more watchful eye on companies uh, during the course of their their you know DPA or MPA period. Mike, over the years we've done this, I've done podcasts with you. Uh, we've had a couple of themes, and one of the themes is that perhaps the most difficult discussion uh, you as outside counsel would have with a board or other senior management and decisions they have to make is the decision whether or not to self disclose. So I wanted to maybe end this section of our review of the Monaco speech by asking you, has this made that discussion even more difficult or are there more moving parts you have to consider or um, self-disclosure, uh, our regulatory system, at least in the FCPA world, is largely be, uh, built on self-disclosure. Are we moving towards a system now where the balance has may slide down to less self-disclosure because of some of these trends, or do you think things may just sort of sort themselves out as they have in the past? I think in the short term, these policy changes make that discussion more complex. Um, you know, in the, in the FCPA context, we have the, the corporate enforcement policy, um, and that's been in place for a number of years now. I think us as practitioners have gotten used to having the conversations and understanding the, the various inputs into the decision of, of the department on a, uh, you know, on a declination or, you know, receiving full credit, 50% credit for, for um, potentially off the bottom of the U.S. sentencing guidelines range. But there are a couple of changes that could affect that analysis. The first, which we discussed, is in order to, to be eligible for the corporate enforcement policy, you have to fully cooperate. And that you know, in theory, that now means disclosing all information about uh, about all individuals involved, uh, and and that you know, when you're having a conversation with senior leadership for the board, that that makes the conversation um, more difficult. And then the second is, and, and I haven't seen much clarity on this yet. Um, you know, 
in cases of criminal recidivism, you are in, in theory under the corporate enforcement policy sort of excluded from, from consideration for a declination or even one of the higher end reductions. And has that term changed now, right? Does that now include uh, past misconduct for tax violations or, or you know, a, a case of, you know, violating environmental laws 10 years ago? I, we just don't know for sure yet. And until there's clarity on that, I think it could potentially change the that discussion. And, and you know, anytime there's, when, when you have those those conversations, the client's always looking for, for clarity. We, you know, they're always looking for certainty. We can never give it, but they're, the closer you can get to, to offering some clarity or certainty about how the how, how these various elements are going to be evaluated, the easier the conversation is. And I think uh, these changes, at least in the short term, are going to are going to make things a little less certain, a li- little less clear, and make those conversations a little more difficult. Mike, I now like to move to the announcement by the Department of Justice, excuse me, the Biden administration in early December on the statement of countering corruption. Uh, I've reviewed that in several other uh, forums or temporal events, if I could use that term. Uh, so I don't want to go into the details of it. But uh, my overall view of this is that it's going to unleash forces that some we can see and some we can't see because of the resources that are going to be made available by the federal government, but also the federal government's commitment to fighting corruption and le- elevating that to a national security issue. So I was wondering if if maybe we could start with how are, how are you and your colleagues at Hughes-Hubbard really uh, – how have you analyzed these concepts and, and what are the types of conversations you're having with clients around this document? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. It's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, most clients came and said, you know, what does this mean for us? It's a hard question to answer because it's, it's really not clear what this means for any specific uh, company, any specific industry, um, except that, as you mentioned, we expect uh, increased enforcement from various angles, just with additional resources coming, not just in the traditional, you know, the Department of Justice will have additional resources to fighting FCPA, which which they will and and has has been announced, but increased resources around the world. uh, That might mean, you know, there's a reference to uh, ensuring that civil society, that investigative journalists in, in some of these countries um, are protected and have the resources they need. And so I, I think aside from that broad statement, it's been very difficult to say exactly what this means and how this is going to play out. But the possibilities are endless, as they say. I mean, that, that we can see uh, the, the way this could impact enforcement in any number of industries from, from any, any number of angles, uh, you know, three times over. So I, I'll just use as an example the defense industry. Because there's there's mention about you know they talk about defense and security in the uh, in the strategy document um, and we could you could see you know I, I think one of the dirty little secrets it's a pretty open dirty little secret is that when it comes to security and, and in places like like Afghanistan when we first went to Afghanistan and, and those places that that the money flows freely from from the U.S. government and and it's not always uh, fully controlled exactly as to how it's how it's spent when security is at issue is at stake uh, that comes sometimes at the expense of uh, compliance or corruption. Um, And, and maybe that's changing. Uh, Maybe there's going to be obligations on uh, companies involved in the defense industry 
in terms of whether that those are reporting obligations, whether they're compliance obligations, uh, or whether it's just you know an, an additional level of scrutiny and, and investigation that happens with respect to those funds. Um, I, I think that's one area where you could potentially see it, and, and really you, kind of all over the place. You could you could say the same for uh, financial services firms. You could say the same for for frankly for lawyers and accountants because there's a there's a, a a part of this strategy document that talks about holding gatekeepers. Uh, accountable. And so really the possibilities are endless. I, we are keeping a close eye just to see how, how things start to play out in terms of rulemaking and, and maybe new task forces and, and that type of thing. So we can get a better handle on and provide better guidance um, to, to our clients in, in various industries. Uh, let me change the focus a little bit again, Mike, uh, by uh, moving to Activision Blizzard. And as we're recording this, uh, in breaking news, Microsoft has announced they're acquiring the entity. So perhaps we may have discussions about that down the road. But uh, several things intrigued me about this case. But the one I wanted to focus on was uh, the allegations were of sexual harassment uh, at the company. And the SEC said it was going to investigate. Traditionally, sexual harassment has been seen as an EOC issue since the EEOC was uh, uh, enacted into law. And this is really one of the first cases I can recall where the SEC got investigated. And there was a fair amount of commentary by SEC lawyers saying this is really outside the remit of the SEC. It's not financial statement fraud or accounting fraud or any of those other issues. The SEC's response was, well, if it impacts your financial statement and it's illegal or fraudulent conduct, we're going to look at it. If you take that view, that's pretty much everything. I was wondering how, how, how if any, uh, you guys had thought about that case, and is that something that uh, you're having conversations uh, or counseling clients around as well? This was inevitable. Now, I, I, and I say that because um, it really is a sign of the times. Um, I, I think in, in some ways this uh, dovetails with the, the focus of the SEC on ESG issues. Um, there are, I think it's a recognition or, or, or maybe the SEC is using, using it as an excuse, but I, it seems to be a recognition by the SEC that different things matter for shareholders than they used to, right? And so, whereas in the past, and this, could, whether it was 10, 20 years ago, uh, shareholders cared about our, our financials, correct? You know, but what, what's our profit and loss statement say? What's, what is, you you hiding any losses and all of that type of stuff. Shareholders now have have broader expectations, uh, and the value of a firm is is derived differently. So that things like pervasive sexual uh, uh, harassment, pervasive sexual misconduct, matters to shareholders. And the fact that you uh, would potentially not have disclosed. Um, Everything about that case uh, is you are you are withholding material information from shareholders and, and and making potential misstatements in that regard. So, in that sense, I I do think you know times have changed, and I think um, this is sort of a natural uh, outcome from that. To your to your point, though, um, it really is it, it it puts companies in a tough spot uh, because. You know, you, in, in, this is a this is a very broad uh, approach that the SEC is taking, and as you said, basically puts everything on the table 
for what the SEC can investigate uh, and, and what they what they won't in terms of disclosure and, and what matters to shareholders. Doc, I'd like to end with a few thoughts on uh, the antitrust world. I know that's not your primary uh, area of expertise, but uh, I think that we have discussed the sea change the Biden administration brought in um, the FTC uh, with new chairman Khan and, and her views on a more robust uh, enforcement and perhaps expansion of, of antitrust law. Uh, are, is the advice you gave before on the basics of a antitrust compliance program, has, has that changed or um, is, is something else going on? It hasn't changed. I would say something similar to what I would say if, um, you know, the, 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 a new uh, Justice Department came in and, and uh, said we are taking very broad interpretations of our powers and we are going to focus extremely uh, hard on uh, FCPA enforcement. Now, I would say the same thing to clients about their FCPA compliance program, which is make sure it's in really good shape uh, and make sure you are you are recalibrating your risks because everything you do now has become more risky because you know the, the government is taking a, a stricter view of this. Uh, and I, I say the same for for antitrust compliance. Really, it's it is we know that, that the FTC is taking a very broad view of their powers and taking a really strict view of of what is considered unfair competition. And so you really as as companies need to recalibrate your risks in those areas, provide training, and just be be hyper aware that that um, everything is a target now for, for for the FTC, at least at least uh, in the short term, um, until they're they're sort of you know, this this interpretation is challenged or, or knocked down. Uh, really it, it's it's just a matter of of this is the time to focus in on your antitrust compliance and and uh, provide the training and doing all the doing all those things that, that you should do anyway, but you really want to do, especially when uh, you know enforcement is going to be tight and strict. I really like your phrase of recalibration of risk, and I think that really encapsulates probably the theme of this podcast even more than my temporal timeline uh, Star Trek reference. Uh, so, uh, Mike, thanks again. Always fun to catch up, and I look forward to seeing what Q1 2022 brings us. Me too. Thanks a lot, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series on the trial of the century, the Enron trial, which recently premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast series, I visit with business journalist Lauren Steffi, who covered the trial for the Houston Chronicle as its business columnist. We take a look at what led to the trial, some of the key witnesses and moments from the trial, and what the trial inevitably meant going forward. It's a fascinating look at the Enron trial some 15 years after it occurred. I know you'll enjoy this special podcast series. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.